We continue on our series of Unexpected in Luke. You'll find we're reading from chapter 9, verses 18 to 50, and page 890. Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. The Transfiguration. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendour talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Jesus heals a demon-possessed boy. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher! I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Jesus predicts his death a second time. While everyone was marvelling at all that, Jesus did what Jesus did. He said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. 
the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons is your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. Sue, good morning everyone. My name is Paul. If I haven't met you, it's good to see you. This is our last uh, sermon in Luke, and then it's Christmas. Uh, in the new year, we're going to do some uh, men and women of courageous faith, and we're going to start 2019 looking at the book of James, and we'll come back to Luke's gospel uh, at the end of next year. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come to your word this morning, uh, we come helpless. Uh, we come, Lord, humbly asking that you would speak. And we come expectantly, knowing that when you speak, uh, you work powerfully in us to teach and transform us, to challenge and to change us. Uh, Father, we do not want to leave this building this morning unchanged. So please speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. First, I think there's a, an epidemic in many, many churches. And I call it comfortable, crossless Christianity. So many Christians want all the benefits of Christianity without the cost of following Christ. Uh, Some people love all the teachings of Jesus and the morality of Jesus. They like all that stuff, but they don't like the, the cost of of really following Jesus as a Lord and Savior. I think you see it most when you hear the cross preached. And people love hearing how the cross of Jesus is a, an example, an example of love, an example of sacrifice. But when you start talking about atonement for sins and the wrath of God and how Jesus says, take up your cross and follow him, uh, people don't like that. I think Jesus is very clear, isn't he? He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, Jesus is saying being a Christian is going to be costly. It's going to involve sacrifice. It's going to involve service. But in many of our churches, we seem to be saying something like this. It's okay to pursue your dreams for your own success and your own personal fulfillment. Feel free to live in increasing levels of luxury and enjoy the good life. And just be part of a good evangelical Bible teaching church. Maybe join a Bible study and attend when it fits into your diary. And occasionally do something really radical like give up a Saturday morning once a year for a working bee so you can feel good about yourself. Or make sure you know your Bible really well so you can smell heresy a mile away and wear your Sydney Anglican badge with pride. 
and you'll be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Live a nice, comfortable life with a sprinkling of Jesus and you'll be fine. And we don't like hearing sermons about the cost, taking up your cross, denying yourself, saying no to self and no to the world. It all seems a bit too demanding. You ever heard of a man called Jim Elliot? He's a well-educated Young man, talented young man with a very, very promising career who wanted to follow Christ. And so he left his home in 1952 and sailed to Ecuador to translate the Bible, the New Testament, and to take the gospel to the Orca tribes. And you know the story of the Orca tribes. They attacked him and his four missionary friends, and they were all killed. They gave their life for Christ. You may not know, before he left for Ecuador, his own believing friends, his own believing friends and his family said this, Jim, do not be a fool. Jim, you can do great things for God here. It'll be safer for you here. It'll be more comfortable for you here. That's the context for Jim's most famous quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There's a man who counted the cost of following Jesus. He was no fool, he was a follower. Have you heard of uh, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley? Were they fools? Were they fools when they stood in Oxford in 1555 and they were tied to a stake and they had gunpowder put around their neck and they were set alight and burned at the stake? Were they fools? No, they were faithful followers of Christ. Latimer was heard to to say, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. They were not fools. And because of their faithful, costly following, you and I are sitting here today with the Bible in our hands and the cross being preached. Praise God for men like that. Was Dietrich Bonhoeffer a fool? No, he was a faithful follower. He was, he was the man who opposed the opposition of the Jews by Hitler, imprisoned for his faith, gave the ultimate sacrifice. He was no fool. He said this, cheap grace is grace without discipleship and grace without the cross and grace without cost. I think Jesus is very clear that being a true disciple will be costly. Am I a fool? That's what I was called back in Oxford. One of my colleagues at Oxford University, an academic, said to me, you fool, Paul. You're a fool giving up an academic career to go into the ministry to be a man of the cloth, they said. If you don't know my story, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. When I went to university, uh, God was put on my radar, so I spent two years investigating Christianity and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and atheism and Judaism. I read every possible book you could read. And it was Luke chapter 9, actually, that, that was my conversion verse. Two years of reading academic books of academic theology. And just a few words from Jesus was like the light bulb moment. When Jesus says to Peter, what about you, he says, who do you say I am? 
And that is the most important question you'll ever answer. What about you? Who do you say Jesus is? It's a very personal question. I think it's the most important question in the entire world. I'm not asking you who your friends and family think Jesus is. I'm not asking you who your minister teaches you that Jesus is. I'm asking you personally, who do you personally say Jesus is? Is he just a good man or is he God? Is he just some spiritual guru or is he your saviour? It is the most profound personal question you would ever, ever answer. And when Jesus says, who do you say I am? He's not being arrogant. I love the story of the hospital waiting room. And everyone's waiting to see the doctor and there's one very self-important, arrogant man there who's unwilling to wait any longer. He thinks he's a somebody. And so he walks up to the, the desk and he bangs the desk and he says, I demand to be seen by a doctor right now. He says, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am, he says. And the receptionist very calmly just presses the intercom button and speaks to the entire way to him and says, there's a man here who seems to have forgotten who he is. Does anyone know who he is? <laughs> so, so when Jesus says, who am I? He, he's not asking out of dementia. He's not asking out of arrogance. He's saying, who am I? Who is this man who is performing the miracles and raising the dead and forgiving sins and calming storms? Who is he? You've got to answer that question in life. You cannot leave that question unanswered. If I told you right here, right now, grab a pencil and write down on a piece of paper who you say Jesus is, what would you write? Now, Jesus starts with the crowds, doesn't he, in verse 18. He says, who do the crowds say? And what, what's the word on the street about Jesus? Let's take a Gallup poll, shall we? What's the opinions on the street? And they're okay answers. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah. He's some kind of prophet. He's some kind of God-man. He speaks for God. A, a nice, high, elevated, elevated view of Jesus. A good teacher, a good man, maybe a prophet. And there are lots of people on the streets of Neutral Bay who would say that. A good man, a good teacher, maybe a prophet. But when push comes to shove, Jesus looks you in the eye. As he looked Peter in the eye, he says, but what about you? It's not about what other people think. What about you, Peter? He says, who do you say I am? That question is more important than which suburb to live in, which country to live in, which job to have, which degree to do, where to go on holiday, whether to get married, who you will marry, when you will retire, what car to buy. They're all mundane questions compared to this one question, who do you say Jesus is? And this is Peter's defining moment. This is his monumental moment. Just two words that will transform his life and your life. Peter answered, God's Messiah. God's Messiah, God's King, God's Anointed One, God's Rescuer, God's Promised Messiah who would rule on David's throne for all eternity. It's the most amazing answer. It is the only answer. It's the right answer. 
But sadly, Peter has the right answer but with the wrong idea. And Jesus won't allow him to have the wrong idea of what the Messiah is going to be like. Because maybe like Peter, you're thinking the Messiah is going to be about victory and chariots and pomp and glory. And Jesus says, that is wrong. Before glory, I've got to go to the cross. Verse 22, he said, the Son of Man, that is Jesus, that's the Daniel 7 fulfillment. The Son of Man must, look at that word must. It's imperative that. It's God ordained that the, that the Son of Man, the Messiah, must suffer. Suffer many things. That was predicted in the Old Testament. Psalm 118, Isaiah 52. Led like a lamb to the slaughter. He must suffer. He must face opposition. He must be hated. He must be falsely accused. He must suffer. And he must be rejected by those who should have known better, by the religious leaders. He's going to be rejected and beaten and mocked and scorned and whipped and flogged and spat on. And he must be killed. You can't have a Messiah without the cross. He must be crucified. There's no other way for him to be God's Messiah than through the cross for the sins of the world to be atoned for. And he must, on the third day, be raised to life again. You cannot have a Messiah who's still dead. He must defeat death. The tomb must be empty. That is Jesus, the the suffering, crucified, risen, ascended king. Is that what you would write? Who do you say Jesus is? The suffering, rejected, crucified, risen, ascended king? that one question that changed my life and when I realized that my life could never be the same again it's the only answer you know God's Messiah there's no other answer to that question you ever been to those Bible studies where somebody gives an answer and everyone else in the group is thinking well that's really weird but the leader's not bothered to say oh oh, that's wrong (laughs) Jesus doesn't take a weird answer. He's happy to say, no, that's wrong. You could be here today with the wrong view of Jesus. He is the Messiah. He did suffer. He did die. He did rise. There's no other way. C.S. Lewis famously said this. I'm trying to prevent anybody saying the really stupid thing that people often say about Jesus. You know, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing you cannot say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man Jesus was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and you can call him your Lord and your God. But please, let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that option open to us. Who do you say Jesus is? That is the most important question. It was May 1990 in my room in Oxford when the 
the light bulb moment happened. Who do I say Jesus is? I, I think he's God. I think he's a Messiah, I said. And I closed my Bible and did nothing about it. Just kept on living my life my way, in my head going, yeah, I think Jesus is God. I think he's a Messiah. September that year, so six months later, I'm in a pub in Oxford called the Eagle and Child with my best friend, Phil. And Phil had grown up in a Christian home and sat where you were sitting all his life and gone to youth camps and led on youth camps and totally walked away from Jesus and turned his back on Jesus. And Phil looked me in the eyes and said, oh, you've been reading your Bible, haven't you? I said, yeah, I, I believe that Jesus is God. I'm a Christian. And he said to me, no, you're not a Christian. What do you mean I'm not a Christian? He said, well, you're not living a Christian life. Let me explain to you what it really means to follow Jesus, to actually live a Christian life. And for two long hours, he sat there, for two hours, sat there explaining to me what it means to live as a Christian, explaining that believing facts about Jesus does not make you a Christian. It's believing the facts about Jesus and then living the life that matters. And I went home to my room in Oxford that night and I knelt before my bed and said, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior and I want to follow you. And that's the moment my life changed. I started following Jesus. See, the second most important question is this, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And Jesus explains, it's very simple, but it's hard. Then he said to them, verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple, to be my follower, must, there's that word again, not an optional extra, he must, she must, deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. When I read verse 23, I don't see Jesus talking about a life of victory and power and privilege, do you? He's talking about service and sacrifice and humility. Just as Jesus suffered, we might suffer. Just as Jesus was rejected, we might be rejected. Just as Jesus took up his cross, so must we. Let me be very clear, following Jesus was never meant to be an easy, stressless journey to glory so what does it mean to follow jesus it's quite simple deny yourself take up your cross and follow deny yourself take up your cross and follow deny yourself take up your cross and follow deny yourself what that means is that you you remove yourself from the center of your world I think I'm very good. I'm sure you are uh, making yourself the center of everything. Your plans, your ideas, your ambitions, the world revolves around you, doesn't it? The follower of Jesus Christ realizes that they are not the center of this universe, but Jesus is. 150 years ago, a philosopher visited America from France and wrote these words. Observation about Americans. Each citizen is habitually engaged in the contemplation of a very puny object, namely themselves. And nothing's changed. 
we are very good at thinking that we are the most important thing in this universe. And Jesus says, deny yourself. He's saying, disown yourself, denounce yourself. It's the same word that Peter used when he denied Jesus. He's not talking about just denying yourself small pleasures like giving up chocolate for Lent or giving up alcohol for July. He said, it's that complete attitude change. My values have changed. My life is not my own anymore. I don't live for myself. I live for Jesus. I kill my own self-will and my own self-interest, and I want to live for Jesus. Someone said this, discipleship is not a matter of deciding that your life is lacking a little something and that Jesus might fill that little void and make you complete and give you happiness. Jesus Christ is not one spoke in your wheel of life. He's at the center. He is everything. And I know that self-denial can sound quite negative. But I didn't come up with it. Jesus did. And it's actually very liberating. It is so liberating when you, you take yourself away from the center and you replace yourself with Jesus and everything is lived for Jesus and for his glory. You deny yourself and you take up your cross. Look at verse 23, take up your cross daily. He did not say take up a cause and follow Christ. I think we're good at that. Take up your cross. It's saying the same thing, actively choose every day to put Jesus as Lord of your life, to serve him, to honor him, whatever the cost. See, in that culture... A person carrying a cross was identified as a dead person. They were about to leave this world. Billy Graham famously said this, when Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up a cross. It was the same as him saying, come on, bring your electric chair with you and take the gas chamber and follow me. He was not thinking about beautiful gold crosses around your neck or a church with a cross on the steeple or a cross on the front of your Bible. He had in mind a place of execution. You say no to yourself, you're dead to yourself, and you're living for Jesus. It's not an optional extra. It might involve suffering and pain and rejection and, yes, even death. I was chatting to a friend of mine who's a missionary in the developing world. He's been there for about 12 years. He said... Uh, here in the developing world, we've got, we've got a lot to be thankful for to learn from the Western church. But one thing I think we can teach the Western church is this. We know what it is to take up our cross. We know what it is to live each day putting Jesus first, whatever the cost. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Follow me is just easy. It's just living God's way, stepping in his footsteps not just obeying commands, not just legalistically keeping rules, but submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord of every area of your life. When I became a Christian, someone sat down with me and said, Paul, do you understand the cost of following Jesus? Would you still follow Jesus if it meant all your friends walked away from you? Would you still follow Jesus if your family disowned you? Would you still follow Jesus if you lost your job for it? Would you still follow Jesus if you lost your life for it? They're the kind of questions that Jesus demands that we answer. Daily, hourly, every minute, 
following Jesus as Lord of our lives. And yes, it will be painful. And yes, it might be tearful. But when self pops up again, you, you push it back down again. I hope you know that following Christ is not just about community and love and friendship and care and mercy. It is those things. But it's not comfortable. Elizabeth Elliot, the widow of the martyr Jim Elliot, said these words. To be a follower of the crucified means sooner or later a personal encounter with the cross. And the cross always entails loss. There's nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. There's nothing worth living for unless it's worth dying for. That is the cost of following Jesus. So why would we do it? Why on earth would we make these costly, sacrificial actions every day? In one word, it's eternity. Because of eternity, that's why we do it. Because of my eternity and your eternity and everyone's eternity, that's why we do it. So the prime mark of a Christian who has understood discipleship is that they're living in light of eternity. It's not just about this world. That's what Jesus says. He says 4, verse 24. There are three paradoxes, all begin with the word for. Verse 24, if you want to save your life now, you'll lose it in eternity. Or you can lose your life now for Jesus and you will save it in eternity. You can gain all the stuff of the world, verse 25, and yet lose your soul. Or you could be ashamed of Jesus now and he'll be ashamed of you in that last day. He's saying live in light of eternity. Remember, verse 24, remember your ultimate salvation. Live for that last day. You can choose to save your life now, verse 24. You can make the comfortable choices and pursue your own agenda and live for now. And seek all the things this world has to offer and be totally, totally empty. Or you could lose your life now for Christ. Make the costly decisions for Jesus. And you'll save your life on that last day because you hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. I think verse 25 is a verse for the lower nor sure. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world? and yet lose or forfeit their soul? What good is it to have everything that money could buy, but to be empty spiritually? What good is it to hoard all your stuff in bigger and bigger houses with better and better views, but lose your soul? I've got many friends who would have sat where you are sitting, and now they're no one. Now they're nowhere with Christ. They've wandered away from their Savior. They've wandered away from their Lord. Why? Because the world was very attractive. And they were seduced by the things of this world. A bigger bank balance to live in a bigger house in a better suburb with better views and better holidays and better cars and better jobs and better prestige and a name for themselves. And as they pursued all that stuff, their soul moved further and further away from Christ. What good is that? 
The answer is no good. I read a great book this year. It's called Living Forward by Michael Hyatt. Christian businessman. It's actually about making good choices, organizing your life well now. It's like a, a business book in many ways. But what he does is he, he asks you to sit down to spend a couple of hours writing eulogies for your own funerals. List all the people who are closest to you. If you're married, your spouse, your best friends, your work colleagues. If you've got kids, what, you, what do you want your kids to say about you at your own funeral? Write it all out. How do you want to be remembered? Do you think your kids care about how much stuff you accumulated? Don't you want to be known for your character and for your good deeds and for your following of Christ? The best Christian husband I could be, the best Christian father I could be, the best pastor I could be, that is worth far, 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 far more than anything that money can buy. He says, verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, if we're embarrassed by what Jesus says in the here and now, if we're embarrassed to talk about Christ and he's the only way to the Heavenly Father, if we're embarrassed by Jesus now on that last day when, verse 26, on Judgment Day, when the, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will come back in glory, will come back with the angels and the trumpet sound and the heavens will open, when he descends on that last day, if we've been ashamed of him now, he'll be ashamed of us. And just to give you a glimpse of that final day, we've got this glorious transfiguration where Peter, James, and John have a glimpse of the ascended, glorified, magnificent Jesus. And that's why the voice comes from heaven saying, listen to him, obey him. These words are true. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It is costly. And it's not comfortable. I'm really sorry if you wanted a comfortable Christianity, you're in the wrong church. We're about costly discipleship. When I came to Australia a few years ago, well, 16 years ago, I did a few youth camps. And they did the traditional give your life to Christ appeal. They did an ABC. Admit you're a sinner. Admit you need forgiveness. Believe that Jesus died for your sins. And then come to Jesus and give your life to him. And I was horrified. See, I've been trained in the UK, if you're going to do a call to Christ, you do an A, B, C, D. Yeah, A is to admit you're a sinner, admit you need forgiveness. B is believe in Christ, believe that Christ died for you and he will forgive you. But C is not come to Jesus. C is count the cost. Count the cost of following Jesus. Please don't come to Jesus flippantly without having understood what it costs to follow him. And once you've counted the cost of following, then you decide that he is to decide to follow Jesus. Please don't sit here this morning not having counted the cost. He doesn't want comfortable disciples. He wants costly discipleship. Who do you say I am? He is God's Messiah. What does it mean to follow him? It's costly. You deny yourself, you take up your cross and you follow him. 
So have you done that? Have you decided to follow Jesus? You know the story of Assam, the man from northern India who heard the gospel through the Welsh missionaries and gave his life to Christ, but the village chief hated the fact he was a Christian. He was hauled before the village chief and called to renounce his faith in Jesus, and Assam said these famous words, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And the chief priest, the chief of the village threatened violence and threatened to beat Assam. And he said these words, though none go with me, still I will follow, no turning back, no turning back. As he watched people being killed, he replied this, the cross before me and the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. I'm going to invite you now to decide to follow Jesus. We're going to do something spontaneous. We're going to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And if that's you this morning, why don't you just join in? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. 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 No turning back, no turning back. I have decided, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus is your Messiah. The suffering rejected crucified, risen, ascended King who will one day return in all his glory. Lord, help us to count the cost of following you. Forgive us, Father, for, for ways that we seek to live comfortable Christian lives. Help us, Lord, to live costly Christian lives. In Jesus' name, amen.